Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we're continuing our series on African-American education in Tennessee. In our first show in the series, we discuss the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau and Freedmen's Schools, which were federal initiatives inaugurated in 1865 to educate the formerly enslaved. That hugely important program was a first step in educating those who had been denied education previously. That experiment lasted from 1865 until 1872 when the Bureau ceased to exist. Local black schools struggled to keep their doors open, mostly funded by the families of the students who attended the schools, as well as religious and philanthropic organizations. Although African Americans were free in society, resources and opportunities, let alone equal opportunities, were scarce. With the 20th century, however, came progressive initiatives designed to benefit rural areas. In 1912, a new program to assist and expand African American education was established with the Rosenwald School Building Program. At its height, there were some 5,300 Rosenwald schools in 15 states that educated more than 600,000 African American children. The Rosenwald School Building Program is the topic of today's edition of History's Hook. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, local historian and president of the African American Heritage Society of Murray County, Joanne McClellan. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning, Tom. And we're joined via phone by Dr. Mary Hofschwelly, professor of history at Middle Tennessee State University. Dr. Hofschwelly received her bachelor's degree from Chatham University, her master's from the College of William and Mary, and her Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University. Dr. Hofschwelly specializes in Tennessee and women's history and is an expert on the Rosenwald School Program, having authored a number of books and publications on the subject, including Bringing New Hope and Confidence to the People, Children in the Rosenwald Schools of the American South, 1912-1932, to which was published by Rutgers University Press, Rebuilding the Rural Southern Community, published by the University of Tennessee Press, and Rosenwald Schools in the Rural Southern Landscape, published by the University of Colorado Press. Good morning, Dr. Hofschwelli. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Be- before we get into the Rosenwald School, which we'll spend most of our time on, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, what was happening in African-American education following the end of the Freedmen School Program in 1872. What was the status of black education in the South between 1872 and the beginning of the Rosenwald Program in 1912? Well, it was very spotty, um, as um, your introduction explained. In that period after the closure of the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, African-American communities largely shouldered the burden for educating their children. Um, Tennessee did have a law that uh, mandated, if you will, uh, universal public education but uh, county school boards and local district boards actually decided which students would receive public funding. And often the black schools were left out or were last on their list. So black parents, um, community members, 
would supplement whatever meager resources were provided by public funding to offer education for their children. Many churches assume that responsibility as well. What did a typical school, uh, an African-American school in rural Tennessee, look like uh, by the late 19th century? Well, some would have been um, sort of disguised uh, in in other buildings. So many public schools for black children operated in church buildings. Um, They operated in the buildings of fraternal lodges. And so they were really um, not visible on that landscape. And so you would not have said, oh, there's a school. You would have looked at a building and said, there's a church, there's a lodge. But everybody in the community would have known that that is also where the school operated. Uh, Other buildings would have been really depended on um, whether community members had been able to raise enough money themselves to build a school building or they could have perhaps repurposed an earlier building, so perhaps an earlier church when they built a new church facility. Um, Or they had taken over a pre-existing school building that had been built for white children and then abandoned when a new school for white children was uh, constructed, and they had taken that over. So they would have been really just simple rectangular buildings, often made, uh, in fact, most likely made of wood. And they would have had a few windows, uh, one or two doors, and very little in the way of amenities. Some of these schools have been very well documented with photography. I know in the Murray County Archives we have a a good collection of some of the early schools uh, that were done. And the the ubiquitous bench, sort of the half-log bench that the children had to sit on all day long. Uh, Blackboards were almost non-existent. Um, But even bathroom facilities were a real problem. I think there was a a pretty large percentage of these early schools that had no bathroom facilities whatsoever, and those schools that did were very rudimentary. Right. Uh, That's it. Not even outhouses uh, were provided for the students or for the teacher in most cases. And no heating as well in many cases. Um, Sometimes a stove for the winter months, but um, nothing that would actually keep the entire building warm. So this period, the 1890s, uh, up until about 1920s, considered the progressive era in America. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a lot of reforms and changes going on, many of them having to do with education. What, what's going on in America that's prompting the reforms that are coming out of this progressive movement in the early 20th century? Well, in other parts of the United States, um, it would have been um, the influx of um, immigrants, from, primarily from Europe, um, it would have also been the um, concentration of people in large cities, so urbanization, and then the continuing industrialization of the United States. Here in the South, as in other more rural, agriculturally-based parts of the country, there was um, a lot of change happening as well, the mechanization of agriculture, um, though that, again, did not really affect Southern agriculture as much. Um, But there was industry in the South, uh, small-scale mining industry, um, textile industries in places like southern middle Tennessee. Uh, But for our region, a major issue was migration. 
and the out beginnings of the what we call the Great Migration, the out migration of African Americans from the South into other parts of the country, primarily the Northeast and the Midwest and the big cities there as they looked for other opportunities. There was also a corresponding migration of white Southerners from rural areas into cities and into industries. And so there was a lot of concern then about the changes taking place, um, how industry was reshaping people's lives, and then what was going to happen to the rural South and to agriculture. Uh, how could you keep people on the farm uh, voluntarily or sometimes almost involuntarily uh, by forcing them to stay because of debt, for example, for sharecroppers? So that is part of what is motivating this. There's also a, a corresponding concern that is about the quality of life. So if people want to leave their rural communities, then what kinds of opportunities should be created for them? Uh, providing schools access to education um, was seen as one way that you could improve the quality of people's lives and also make them more productive citizens, more productive for the economy in the rural South. That's great. So we're going to uh, take our first break right now. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the beginning of this Rosenwald School Building Program. We'll be back right after these messages on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. When you think of diamonds, what do you think of? Rare, precious, timeless, sparkles like the sun. They are timeless and nothing like them on earth. Then do you think, where do I buy local to buy the perfect ring? Maybe a diamond pendant or earrings or maybe a new diamond band. Look no further. Tillis Jewelry carries all your diamond and jewelry needs. Stop by and see our wonderful collection. And remember, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jeweler. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. 
This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. We're continuing our conversation today about African-American education in Tennessee. Uh, And... Uh, in 1912, the Rosenwald School Building Program gets its start. Uh, it represented an important partnership between two men, Dr. Hofschwelli, Booker T. Washington, and Julius Rosenwald. I think out of those two, most people recognize the name Booker T. Washington, uh, and maybe less so Julius Rosenwald. Remind our listeners first, who is Booker T. Washington, and how is he involved with this endeavor? Well, Booker T. Washington was one of the most uh, well-known, influential, and important representatives of African Americans in the late 19th and very early 20th century. Um, And that is a position he sought eagerly for himself to uh, advance in a way for African Americans, as he saw it, by seeking access to education and economic advancement rather than social and political rights. Um, He was the principal of Tuskegee Institute, which was a very influential institution of higher education for African Americans in Macon County, Alabama. He was actually born into slavery. So he he came, he's sort of that last generation, I think, of former enslaved people who went on to to be a leader um, within the African-American community. Uh, Yeah. It's interesting. There are a few, I think, audio recordings of some of his speeches, which if our listeners ever get an opportunity to to listen to some of those, they're they're really Mm -hmm. quite amazing to to hear his voice. Um, Perhaps the lesser uh, known name in this partnership was Julius Rosenwald. Tell, Tell us a little about his background? Well, Julius Rosenwald was um, a member of the business elite. He was the president of Sears Roebuck and Company. Um, He had worked his way up through the clothing trade. Um, His family connections um, led him to positions in New York, where he made contact with other people who would become influential in American finance. And then he moved to Chicago and uh, was able to buy into Sears Roebuck thanks to some family connections and then became president. He is really the person who made Sears Roebuck the powerhouse in merchandising that it became at the turn of the century. Right. I think one of the statistics that I heard was from 1895 until 1907 during his vice presidency at Sears Roebuck, annual sales increased from $750,000 to $50 million, an incredible business acumen that he had. And then, of course, uh, after finding great wealth, he turns to philanthropy. Um, I I also Mm -hmm. found it interesting that Rosenwald was brought up in Springfield, Illinois. He was born in 1862 during the war and and was born just a few blocks down the road from Abraham Lincoln's home in Springfield. Um, Do do we have any indication, was his interest in in furthering African-American endeavors, uh, do you think that had anything to do with his growing up in Springfield, Illinois? Uh, Yes, it did. It did have an influence on him. He remembered vividly. Um, thinking about that as a child, I believe he sold a pamphlet 
um, uh, uh, about uh, Lincoln uh, as a young boy. Um, so that did have a big influence um, early on in, in, in his thinking. But um, it was really more his experiences and his adult life, his contact with other philanthropists, the influence of his rabbi um, who encouraged him to think about philanthropy as one of his responsibility as a member of the Jewish faith. Um, I think those had really more, um, more of an impact um, did, in leading him towards the Rosenwald School. Did Rosenwald play a role in the establishment of the Negro Business League? You know, uh, Booker T. Washington traveled the country, even coming to Columbia to, uh, in 1909 to establish a Negro Business League. Did Rosenwald play a role in that? Uh, not to my knowledge, uh, although he was supportive of those kinds of efforts. But, yeah, that's an amazing story, what Washington and then was able to do in terms of linking local business leaders through the business league. So we have these two men from very different backgrounds, Washington and Rosenwald. How, how does this relationship between the two of them begin? Well, Rosenwald, like many other white Americans, read Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington's most famous book. Uh, then he was encouraged to buy some fellow philanthropists, um, in fact, read some biographies of others who were involved in working on issues affecting African-American education in the South. Uh, he then uh, was invited by Booker T. Washington to join the Board of Trustees for Tuskegee Institute. And that is the beginning of their relationship. Um, they became immediately great friends. I mean, they had a great personal relationship. And Rosenwald was looking for a way to sort of make his own mark um, in African-American education. And uh, Booker T. Washington had sort of lined him up as his, the next great benefactor who could do something. I thought it was interesting that Rosenwald also contributed funds to some of the great African-Americans, who's who in African-American history, like uh, Marian Anderson and Julian Bond's father. Have you uh, read any of the information about that? Uh, that was through the fellowship program yeah. that the Rosenwald Fund started later on. That okay. really didn't begin until after... Um, Julius Rosenwald himself had passed away. Of oh, course, okay. Booker T. Washington was long gone by then. But no, that is a fascinating legacy that the Rosenwald Fund left okay. behind. So I think initially, um, Mr. Rosenwald agrees to fund five schools in Alabama, and then it sort of grows from there. Um, talk to us a little bit about how, how the program works. So if a community wanted to build a school, what was the, what was the process in place by which, by which they could build a school through the Rosenwald Fund? Well, at the very beginning, it was sort of a three-way split of uh, the cost of building a new school. Um, and this was something, actually, that Tuskegee had been experimenting with um, in communities before um, they recruited Julius Rosenwald as a benefactor. But the idea was that um, a community would... Uh, apply to build a school, they'd have to have lined up the support of their local school board. The school board would put in one-third of the cost. Um, Julius Rosenwald would put in a second third, and then community members would have to raise the final third of the construction costs. 
Um, now that changed over time, but what remained constant is that there would be three major sources of funding, um, local public school funding, the Julius Rosenwald Fund's uh, contribution, and then a local match to the Rosenwald Fund. So this required a commitment from both the African-American community as well as the white community um, in order to get a school. How, how difficult right. of a sell was it to, to get a school in a community? Uh, what, what were the racial tensions that were, were happening um, around around well, this idea, I, that yeah, um, that really depended on the local context and how sympathetic a given county superintendent was or was not. And of course, most of those county superintendents of schools were elected, um, and so they had to face um, constituents um, every few years to hold on to their jobs. In other cases, they were appointed. Um, and had maybe a little bit more job security. So they tend to reflect the overall um, context um, of their own community. So in some places, it was rel- a relatively easy sell um, in the sense that, um, yes, the school board had been unwilling to spend much money, but then faced with the prospect of a Rosenwald grant and the um, black communities match to that grant, then they'd say, okay, now we'll go ahead and spend some money on this new school. And in other places, um, it took years of petitions even to um, get a new school, even with this extra funding and the offer of additional black parent support. Right. I I think it's a a brilliant way to do it. It's bringing the community together. And there are some thought processes behind the behind behind this, I think, that's working very effectively. One is it's sort of forcing African-American, the African-American community and the white community to work together to a common goal. Uh, So it's building community support. It's requiring a commitment uh, on all sides, uh, both in kind and financially. Uh, and what politician's going to turn down free money if it's available to him? So it kind of forces the issue. I, I think it's a, a wonderful way to to for this program to work. Um, what about? Let's talk about the teachers for a second. Who who were to be the teachers in the Rosenwald schools? Were they trained as part of this process? Were they paid uh, for through this process? Uh, let's talk about the teachers a little bit. Well, the teachers, of course, were public school teachers, so they were employed by the the county. Uh, school system, um, they had received a varying amounts of education. What is interesting is that if you look in the early 20th century for um, uh, comparing white and black teachers, there were times when African-American teachers actually had higher educational levels than their white peers. Um, and that reflects the actually sort of the, the lack of opportunities in other professions for African Americans at that time. Um, and in the very early years, there was not much um, higher education available, public higher education, I should say, for African Americans for teacher training. But uh, denominational schools and later what would become uh, Tennessee State University offered teacher training programs. Uh, for African-Americans, and so they would have been the staff for these uh, schools. Um, They were not, however, paid the same uh, as their white peers in the same system. But they were well-respected, great community leaders in many, many cases. 
what is interesting here in Colombia is that um, Roger um, John W. Johnson, who was the president of Roger Williams University, and uh, his brother conducted a teachers' institute every summer. And several of these uh, teachers that went on to teach in the rural schools attended that teachers' institute. Um, the they were it's like a ten or twelve week program, and then they went to Nashville to be certified to teach. Uh, so that was mm-hmm. the teachers that I remember. In fact, my Rosenwald teacher um, got her first certificate through that program. Um, so rural communities varied in sizes a great deal. So some of these schools are very small, one teacher schools, all the way up to to schools that could house uh, seven, eight, and and nine teachers. Let's talk about the Rosenwald program in terms of the architecture. So a community is able to come together, uh, get the funds and the in-kind support to build a school. Uh, What did these schools look like, and how are they chosen? Well, that was one of the great um, goals of the Julius Rosenwald School program, was to provide purpose-built, properly designed and constructed public school buildings for African-American children and their teachers. So uh, in the very early years, um, uh, Robert R. Taylor, an architect at Tuskegee Institute, um, prepared a number of designs for schools that could be used for the construction of Rosenwald schools. Then in 1914, um, here in Tennessee, Samuel L. Smith who was a white man who was put in charge of African-American schools for the State Department of Education, he developed a new set of plans. And by 1920, his plans uh, became the official Rosenwald Community School Plans when he took over running that program. Uh, However, I should say the Rosenwald Fund, even though they provided school plans and made them available free of charge, they did not require communities to use their plans. What they did require was that the school building be built to modern standards. So they approved school buildings based on that. Uh, so not all Rosenwald schools uh, look alike, but what's also interesting is that because those plans were free, um, county school boards, who don't usually like to spend a lot of money on architect's fees, they began using those plans to build not just uh, Rosenwald schools, but other schools for African-Americans. Um, that did not have Rosenwald grants, and sometimes for white schools as well. So architecturally, there's sort of this form that they're following. Um, They were paying attention to things like uh, airflow and proper lighting uh, for the students. And uh, one of the big ones, of course, is sanitation. They were having a real problem with children's health, especially in these rural areas where uh, some of the children lived in less than sanitary conditions at home. Coming to school uh, was sort of exacerbating the problem. So as they're thinking about building these and, and making these designs for Rosenwald schools, they have all of these things in mind, including restroom facilities, which is sort of a, a big, big step forward, as we talked about. That was a, a big change. Um, so yeah. uh, how how many do we know how many Rosenwald schools were built in Tennessee? Oh, I used to have that number memorized, Tom, but <laughs> no, that's all right. But, we're, but uh, look that up, um, aren't I? I'm trying to find my list here. It's 385, I believe. Um, there we go. Excuse me, 354 schools they, in Tennessee. They also built um, nine teachers' homes and ten shop buildings. Those would have been 
um, for vocational education. So, excuse me, that's a total of 373. Um, Mary, can you talk about the role of the Jeans Teachers? Oh, Jeans Teachers, um, yes, they were some of the most important female educational leaders in counties like Murray County. Um, Anna Jeans was a white woman from Philadelphia who, like Julius Rosenwald, became interested in supporting public education for blacks in the rural South. And she set up her own philanthropic foundation, the Jeans Fund, to support teachers who would be itinerant um, vocational teachers in a given county. The vast majority of these teachers were female, um, and though initially their work was um, in promoting vocational education, over time they became really curriculum supervisors. They also were critical organizers and fundraisers for Rosenwald schools in the communities where they were working. I think this is a good place to stop. Uh, We'll come back in a minute and talk more about the curriculum at Rosenwald Schools and then talk about uh, what Rosenwald Schools look like uh, on a local level. Uh, We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hoods for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. 
Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Rosenwald uh, School Building Program. Uh, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the curriculum at Rosenwald Schools. What were the children learning uh, in these schools? Well, they were supposed to follow the regular curriculum mandated by the State Department of Education, um, so they would have um, had those standard academic subjects. However, at Rosenwald Schools, the initial idea was for there to be an extra emphasis on vocational education, which was very much in keeping with Booker T. Washington and many whites' perception of what was proper for black children to learn. That said, what um, was found is that uh, the teachers followed the curriculum, and they uh, might have incorporated vocational subjects, but they stressed academics as well as the best way for their students to um, improve their lives. So there was a, a little bit of a controversy between Booker T. Washington's um, uh, a theories on uh, uh, African-American promotion. He had this idea of uh, the self-help philosophy uh, that if you uh, right. work hard, uh, get educated, you can sort of bring yourself up. There were others in the community, in the African-American community, African-American leadership, who sort of saw things a little bit differently. So this is a little bit of a controversial aspect. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Uh, I think W.E.B. Du Bois is one who, who comes out rather harshly uh, 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 against Booker Washington on on this idea, right? That um, the, you know, people like W. B. Du Bois thought that was limiting opportunities for African Americans as a group, and then particularly as individuals, that they would not be able to fulfill their own potential, and that it was their right to be able to fill their to fulfill that potential. So there is that tension broadly. Um, but I, and I think the way it plays out in Rosenwald schools is the particular balance that teachers and their communities struck in trying to achieve both goals, academic training and then the required vocational training. So it, it's interesting. Every Rosenwald school has a designated vocational room, yet what you see people complaining about who were looking in at those schools um, from the Rosenwald Fund or from the State Department of Education is they're not using those rooms for uh, vocational subjects. They're teaching regular classes there. Um, So what happens over time is that that vocational training gets put into sort of a 
a smaller uh, context and academics comes to the fore. Right. Right. I, I think it's uh, really... I'm not sure that Du Bois would have thought that it happened fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Joanne, do we know how many Rosenwald schools were built in Murray County? Based on what I've found so far, we had about 15 that followed the guidelines. They were funded with Rosenwald funds, and they were built using the architecture. The uh, first one was in um, Godwin, Tennessee, which was actually an experimental school. Uh, It was funded with the money from Tuskegee Institute, and uh, it was the first one. It was built in 1917. The first teacher actually went to Tuskegee to be trained to become a teacher in the Rosenwald School. Um, And then we had... uh, most were two te- uh, one-teacher schools, but we had several two-teacher schools. We had one that ended up being a five-teacher school down in Mount Pleasant, which became the Clark High School. Um, but um, the Jeans teachers really, really played a large role in Murray County. I was fortunate enough to get to know the second Jeans teacher, the first Jeans teacher, Stella House-Smith. She was, like, really, really focused on Early on, like Mary said, in the 1920s, the industrial education. Uh, in the 1920-21 school year, she established about three schools. And at the end of that school year, she had this big exhibit on East 8th Street at the Oddfellows Hall where she invited W.G. Hale down to speak. And W.G. Hale was the president of the, uh, he was the founding president of TSU. So she had him to come down and speak where all of these students from across the county showed their industrial projects. but um, About how many of the 15 or so Rosenwald schools in Murray County uh, were built following one of the Rosenwald plans? All 15 15 15? that I've seen um, followed the plan. Now, in 1940, um, both um, Mrs. Uh, Smith and Ms. Fulton talked about uh, 28 Rosenwald schools in uh, 28 schools in Murray County, but I have not identified those the other others as being Rosenwald schools because number one, I haven't found the funding assigned to them from Rosenwald funds, and I haven't found any other additional information. Now, the Fish University database has only nine that they list in Murray County, but by going through the Murray County um, Board Board of Education minutes, I found the others. Hmm. Um, And I found that uh, Mary is correct. The funding was like one-third, one-third, one-third. But in some cases, the the community contributed more than just the third. In some cases, they contributed less. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to attend um, Rosemont School, and that was one of the best experiences that I think I've had. So uh, your school was the Theta School? My school was the Theta School. Uh, it was uh, established in 1923. It was one of the two teacher schools, and it had um, the teacher principal that taught and by the time I started in 1953, uh, the focus was strictly education, not industrial. I don't remember seeing an industrial room. Uh, there were days when um, we had um, the Home Demonstration Club or the Forish Club people come in, and they taught sewing and cooking and public speaking even, but as far as an industrial room, we didn't have that in 1953. It was really reading, writing, and arithmetic. Do we know in Murray County, was there any 
maybe animosity is too strong a word, but was there any pushback from white citizens uh, in, in building Rosenwald schools here? Well, the problem that I've seen, and I've talked to several people who attended Rosenwald schools, the problem that, that I see is that they felt that the Rosenwald schools or their schools in general were not supported. Um, we were given secondhand books. Um, we didn't have the facilities, the lavatory facilities that um, the white schools had. We didn't have the um, the equipment, playground equipment. The, but the most important thing is that we were not given secondary education. In most of the, in the, until the late 50s, African-American children that attended the Rosenwald schools had no opportunity to go to high school because the transportation was not provided. In order to attend high school, you had to live in the city to go to high school. Now, my I'm a second-generation Rosenwald school person, so, you know, my, my, uh, my, my family could not attend high school unless they boarded in the city with uh, with someone and my auntie did board in the city. So, so families had to be separated out in order for children to go to to be able to continue their right. education. And that was like until the um the um mid fifties in the mid fifties um I know my uncle drove kids to high school and then eventually they were provided buses. But you know, in contrast, in nineteen thirty six there was a white high school in my community, and then they closed that high school, and then the county provided buses to send those kids to the either the high school in uh, Santa Fe or the high school in uh, in Spring Hill. So the biggest problem, the biggest resentment, I think, is they didn't have an opportunity to go to high school. Dr. Hofschwelli, do we have any statistics uh, on graduation rates uh, with the Rosenwald schools? I don't. Um, and of course, those really changed over time. I mean, if you're looking at high school graduation rates, um, high schools themselves um, and high school graduates, like four-year high school graduation rates, you know, that is not something you see until really the 1920s. It's sort of hard for us to imagine, but it was not until about 100 years ago now that high school became a common experience for many people, for African-Americans, as Joanne just alluded to, it was even more difficult to be able to stay in high school. So what the Rosenwald Fund looked at was not so much a graduation rate, but what we would call a persistence rate. How long could African-American children remain in school? And they wanted to raise those rates from what had started out as an average of really for only getting to the fourth grade to push to the sixth grade, the eighth grade, the tenth grade, and then eventually the twelfth grade, um, but uh, but that kind that kind of persistence to the twelfth grade um, depended on having access to a full twelve year public school education, and then being able economically to afford that um, as well. So you really don't see that until the um, late 1930s and in the 1940s. So do we see, how do we measure success, I guess, is the, the proper question then. Are we seeing uh, an, an increase in success for students as a result? Is the Rosenwald program uh, being successful in, in the manner that, that Washington and Rosenwald foresaw? 
Well, your, your question is, is very apt in terms of how do we measure that success. Um, if we looked at did it break down um, all the barriers that kept people from having access to public education? No. Um, did they ever get an equal public education? No. Um, but on the other hand, what is, I think, most important about the Rosenwald Fund and its operation is the way that it created this partnership between community members, school boards, state departments of education, and they could leverage that Rosenwald funding to expand opportunities and access to education that probably would not have been possible without the leverage of that Rosenwald grant. And so to the extent that children were able to get two or four or even six more years of education. Um, that, I think, is a success. And I think the way that communities came to feel about their schools is another measure of success. It was a representation of individual achievement, but also community achievement. We're going to take our final break right now. We'll be back. You're listening to History Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. One, two, it's coming for you. Three, four, you could win much more. Five, six, on a scratch ticket. Seven, eight, it's not too late. The new haunted Jumbo Bucks Instant Game. With a top prize of $75,000, it's a terrifyingly great way to celebrate Halloween. Only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Just remember to play responsibly. Nine, ten, time to play again. I'm on Dead Men's Bend at midnight when my gas light pops on. I see a gas station ahead. Just my luck. Or is it? I walk in. The attendant lifts a bony finger towards me and croaks, You want a Halloween jumbo bucks? I whisper it terrified. No. And as I leave, he asks the lady behind me. She says, okay. And then... She wants $75,000! Scare up some cash with the Halloween Jumbo Bucks Instant Game. Only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing hair-raising fun. Please play responsibly. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MimsModernLandscape.com. That's MimsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO, grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're continuing our conversation on African-American education in Tennessee, uh, focusing on the Rosenwald uh, School Building Program. Um, Joanne, you you mentioned there were 15 or so schools uh, in uh, Murray County, 
Of those 15 schools, about how many are still standing today? Uh, actually, only uh, about four or five. Uh, the one in Canaan is being preserved, and it's a part of the AME Church. The Dry Forks one is a part of the Dry Forks Church. And then a couple have been converted to residences. So I think that's basically it. Um, there are some that are in ruins and some that are, you know, uh, should be completely demolished. If they're not already, they may be of danger. But that's basically basically it. Dr. Hofschwelli, do we know how many on on the state level? Uh, and what are our efforts uh, that are underway to preserve some of these historic buildings? Well, there's, I'm not sure of a, a, an exact number for the state, although there's been a survey done by the Tennessee Division of Archaeology to find all of the sites, or as many as possible, where Rosenwald School, school stood. Um, and we, I, I think the oldest is the one in uh, West Bemis, Tennessee, that dates back to 1916. The um, several hundred still stand across the, the states, all 15 states that had Rosenwald schools. So there's been all sorts of um, preservation efforts. Um, The vast majority of them uh, led at the local level as people have taken over school buildings and sometimes used them as private homes um, or have converted them to other kinds of uses such as um, Head Start or community centers. And, And there's a few that are still in operation as schools as well. Um, and then there have been statewide efforts by preservation offices and national efforts led by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, they're wonderful little buildings from an architectural standpoint. They, uh, Because they're built in the first two decades, uh, for the most part of the 20th century, uh, they sort of incorporate uh, the bungalow style or craftsman style of architecture. So those mm-hmm. those beautiful rectangular and, and square lines, the beautiful windows. Uh, so they're, they're wonderful buildings uh, that you find in, in the community. Uh, I'd love to see more of them, more of them preserved. Um, Joanne. Williamson County is preserving one uh, and they're moving it to an offsite to, um, uh, to some property that they own. And there's an organization down in uh, Lawrence County that recently acquired a Rosenwald school from the county because they still they are owned by the county. So they recently acquired a Rosenwald school from the county and they're trying to start an organization to preserve that one. Hmm. So there are people who are understanding the historical nature and the character of those buildings and the significance of those buildings to African-American history. And they're trying to trying to preserve them. And I noticed uh, the National Trust for Historic Preservation classified them as national treasures. So um, there are people that are understanding that they are important to the history. Um the these schools uh, really in terms of success and and what they meant to communities and what they meant to the african american community in terms of education is really immeasurable at this point can can either of you can pitch in on this who are some success stories are are there any people out there that went on to great success that maybe could even point towards their Rosenwald education experience as as their means of finding that success well i know i know of t- two people who are doctors that list their experiences at a Rosenwald school as contributing to their success. One is a dentist, one is a medical doctor in Baltimore. 
uh, here locally, we've had people who attended Rosenwald schools who've been very successful politically. So, uh, and I think there are, there are more people um, that that are attributing their success to the times that they spend in the Rosenwald School. Dr. Hofschwelli, do you have... Well, I was just going to add um, two names that your listeners might recognize. Um, Representative John Lewis, congressman from Georgia. Exactly. And um, Maya Angelou. um, Exactly. Both are uh, Rosenwald School alumni. Right. That's exactly right. Dr. Hofschwelli, what, what is the greatest legacy... Uh, in your opinion, of the Rosenwald School Program, and and just briefly, if you could, what's what's next in, in terms of African American education? What did it what did it lead to? Well, I think one of the most important legacies of the of the Rosenwald School movement is the way that it, it also lifted um, and increased educa- uh, attention to African American education. Period. Um, and so it, it acted as leverage for improving conditions for those who are attending other non-Rosenwald-funded uh, public schools. And that, that meant that the next generation, and I think there actually has been a study of this by the Federal Reserve Bank, looking at sort of lifetime consequences. And having attended a Rosenwald school you know, really improved life outcomes for the generation of African Americans who um, we would associate with the greatest generation, those who were young adults during World War II. So it was a great um, leap forward in that respect. Um, and I think, too, it leaves a, a legacy of community achievement and identity um, that um, many communities have drawn on you know, to this very day. But uh, what I think is the next step is to pay attention to what we see now in terms of the resegregation of public education, and what that might mean for students in our future. That, that will be uh, sort of the third segment in this, in this three-part uh, segment that we're doing on African-American education is the, the idea of segregated schools and the ending of segregated schools uh, following Brown versus Board of Education in the ni- mid-1950s and, and what that meant to Murray County uh, especially. That will be sort of the third part in this. We're, we're going to have uh, a few people coming into the show to talk about uh, what that meant in Murray County in 1969 as the schools uh, integrated. So that, that will be the third step, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to having that uh, conversation. Um, that's going to conclude our discussion today. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mary Hofschwelli, for sharing your expertise with us. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Um, oh, thank you. Um, for, for our listeners, uh, Dr. Hofschwelli is a prolific writer on the subject and on the subject of the progressive era generally. So uh, check out her books. They're widely available. Joanne, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you. And I'm going to leave you with this quote from Julius Rosenwald. He said, All the other pleasures of life seem to wear out, but the pleasure of helping others in distress never does. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. If you have water, smoke, or fire damage, call my friend Daisy at ServPro. And join us again next week as we connect the history in your own backyard to the world uh, on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. 
Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM FM, Columbia, Tennessee. Hello, my name is Zach Maddox. I'm a proud third-generation owner-operator of Columbia Paint and Wall Cover, founded by my grandfather, Ralph Maddox, in 1946. Now I'm honored to continue the legacy as owner-operator today. We offer a variety of paint and wall covering products, but our passion is customer service. We can offer many personalized services and can come out to your house or business if needed. Visit us at our store, downtown Columbia, at 1114 Carmack Boulevard or online at paintcolumbia.com. Don't put off getting your oil changed, Columbia. Take 5 is faster than you think. There's no appointment needed and no waiting room. Yep, you heard that correctly. Take 5 is so fast, you don't even have to get out of your car. Visit their newest location at 1203 South James Campbell Boulevard and take advantage of their $15 off grand opening special. That's right, $15 off any oil change, Columbia. Take 5, the stay-in-your-car 10-minute oil change. They're faster than you think. This is Bob Kessling with Pat Ryan. It's a beautiful day for digging. The backhoe operator has the engine running and is moving into position. He's heading for the ground. He's in there. Wait, there's a flag on the play. Let's get out of the field for the call from our official. Illegal procedure on the digging team. Oh, that penalty could cause a costly accident. That's right, Bob. He needs to call before he digs. There's underground utility lines that could be hiding just below the surface. Water, sewer, electrical, communication lines, and even natural gas. Avoid a penalty by first calling 811 to have any underground public utility lines located and marked with flags or paint. It's free, it's easy, and it's the law. For more tips, visit pipesafety.org. This message brought to you by the Tennessee Association of Broadcasters and the Tennessee Gas Association, funded in part by a grant from the Underground Utility Damage Enforcement Board. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and Murray Regional Health is reminding all women 40 and older to schedule their annual mammogram. Breast cancer affects one in eight women, and the best defense is early detection. Mammograms can detect breast cancer in its early stages, sometimes before signs and symptoms are present. Schedule your mammogram today at our locations in Columbia, Hohenwald, Lewisburg, Waynesboro, and Spring Hill by calling 931-380-4044 or visiting murrayregional.com mammogram. Murray Regional Health, where clinical excellence meets compassionate care. Foster Insurance Agency is a locally owned independent agency and a proud member of the insurers of Tennessee. Foster represents many top-rated insurance companies such as Auto Owners Insurance. The great team at Foster has been servicing Columbia and surrounding areas in Middle Tennessee since 1952 and offers many commercial and personal insurance products. Call Mike Ford or Jimmy Ford today at 931-388-8365 or stop by their convenient location at 204 West 4th Street in Columbia, Tennessee. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. I'm your host, Tom Price. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Saturdays at 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. Right here on WKOM 101.7 FM Front Porch Radio. Join us for a journey through time. This is Laurie Cole, Executive Director with Pay Grace Forward. 
We are a community solution to predatory lending. We help people in Murray County who are trapped in payday and title loan debt. We do this through financial mentoring followed by low interest grace loans. To see if Pay Grace Forward can help you or to volunteer with our organization, please visit our website at paygraceforward.org or call 931-548-6797. Murray County Volunteer Firefighters provide fire and rescue services to Murray County residents like you. I'm Savannah Madison, Public Information Officer with Murray County Fire. Our department serves over 600 square miles, and as a volunteer department, we rely on community donations to operate. You can also support by joining our department. We help you obtain the certifications to become a support member or firefighter. Learn more about making a tax-deductible donation or becoming a firefighter at murraycountyfiretn.org. That's murraycountyfiretn.org. This is Coach Traders Golf from Columbia Central High School Football. You are listening to 101.7 WKOM in Columbia, Tennessee. <laughs> 